It is just so good to see all of you this morning. Um, and it is such a privilege. Francois said it as we started, as we came in. It's such a privilege to be here. Such a privilege to gather as his people. Um, I've been uh, just while praying for this morning. Um, we're going to talk about the kingdom this morning. The kingdom of God. That was the major theme of Jesus' ministry when he was on earth. Was he spoke about the kingdom of God. And he revealed it and exposed it in a most beautiful way to people who had never heard of it or seen it like it was. The way Jesus spoke of it. And um, I've been thinking about the, the kingdom and what it looks like. And something, I guess, even a theme for us this morning, I just felt like we've always been preached to through the worship, through the hosting, through the life group leaders sharing. Um, we've already heard God speak to us. And it's just an absolute privilege to then add another layer as we come underneath the endless, timeless word of God and its absolute authority over our lives to say, Jesus, would you speak to us through your word? Um, and so it's a real, real joy. But um, just a picture I'd love to share with you. Um, I've been thinking about glaciers, <laughs> strangely enough. I, the, I was listening to this preach, and this guy was talking um, about a friend of his who he played American football against. And this guy... Um, came to tackle him and he was this behemoth of a human being and he knocks him over like a train. You can imagine the pictures and he's down and uh, uh, I thought that was a cool story but um, I was thinking and he used that to describe the kingdom but I was thinking about the kingdom of God a little bit like a glacier. It moves slowly and steadily but if you know anything about glaciers there are these massive rivers of ice and rock essentially that carve out mountain valleys and the amazing thing about a glacier a bit of a geography for you if you are up for it this morning is a glacier is so strong that it doesn't cut a v-shaped valley which is what rivers do rivers cut very fast and they cut downwards they leave a valley in a nice v-shape but glaciers leave a U-shape because they literally scour the entire mountainside and drag rock along with it. And I was thinking about that, strangely enough, when we were talking about Jesus this morning, when we were singing about him, when we um, talk about even this moment in Mark where we've been going through a series in Mark um, and the life of Jesus that we see in this particular part of the Bible. And there's just the sense that I have of the kingdom of God like creaking forward, advancing, unstoppable. Um, and you might think, surely, with these people, these enemies of Jesus, these enemies who will then go and see him crucified on the cross. Surely God is meeting something of his rivalries here, but it's just this unceasing advance of God's kingdom. And even this morning, just uh, I'm so thrilled and excited, even as we gather here, this is not just any old day, but actually even now the kingdom of God is steadily advancing and creaking and scouring and shaping and moving and it can't be stopped. He can't be stopped. And that is an incredible, incredible thing for us to remember and enjoy this morning. So I really trust that you are excited along with me as we go. So where are we at the moment in this series of Mark? Well, we have been looking at the life of Jesus and primarily he's been ministering in various towns and villages along the, in the countryside. And, uh, but then last week we changed gear a little bit and we heard about how Jesus came into Jerusalem. Now the city, essentially the epicenter of where the gospels, all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John converge on this moment as Jesus enters into Jerusalem and essentially slows down their account of what's going on. We kind of hop, skip, and dance through years of Jesus' ministry, but then this final week before the cross, we slow down. And almost like the Bible takes painstaking effort 
to record down the things and the people and the places that Jesus encounters. And so it really, really is so cool to be looking at our passage this morning, which is Mark chapter 11, verses 27, through to chapter 12, verses 12. So it's a little section, but I thought maybe a little bit more helpful is just to kind of give us a tiny bit more context. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem. How does he do it? He does it on the back of a donkey or on a colt, as we heard last week. As he comes in, the people gather. There's excitement. He's this person who has been healing people, and there's been miracles and signs and wonders. And as he's taught about the kingdom of God, people have heard things that they've never heard before. And so this crowd begins to gather, and they are lining the roads, lining the streets. And as Jesus comes on on this donkey, it's called the triumphal entry, and people who... um, knew what a triumphal entry should be, probably looked at it with confusion and said, this is very strange. But this Jesus goes into the temple from there and he looks around and he, and he takes note of a few things. He sees that they are trading and there's a whole bunch of buying and selling, a lot of noise, but not much hearts turned towards God. And so what does Jesus do? He goes home and he premeditates something big. He makes for himself a whip. And I can just imagine, it's like gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but now he's turning over tables and acting wild. And so what does he do? He he comes into the temple and he throws things. And I, I want just to picture that that court was not small. It wasn't like a little room that Jesus came and chucked over a table, whipped at someone, and that was it. It was this massive court, which hundreds of people could have fit into. And so there would have been lots of people there. And Jesus drives them out. He drives out the traders. There's this um, zeal, this passion that he has for this place. And he ends off by saying, actually, my, surely it said, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. We're gonna talk about that a little bit more just now. And then what does he do? He goes and kind of en route to the temple. He'd seen a fig tree, he was hungry. The fig tree was, um, says that there were leaves, but there was no fruit. Jesus curses it, says, actually no one will eat from you ever again. And then on the way back from the temple, they see that the fig trees died. That's kind of the context that we're in now. Jesus has been causing quite the stir in Jerusalem so far. And so we get to this point now where Jesus has obviously upset some pretty important people in the city. And in verse 27, we're going to read through the whole passage together that we're going through today. And then we're going to go through it again, taking out a few things. And then I'm going to end off with a few thoughts at the end that I hope that God really drives home into each of our hearts. So 11 verse 27, this is what it says. And they came again to Jerusalem. That's Jesus and his disciples. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 12, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press, and built a tower, and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, and they took him and beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head, and treated him shamefully. 
and he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And when the, then what will the owner of the vineyard do? He's now asking this to the crowd. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you read the scripture? The stones that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Can we pray quickly? Lord God, this is your word. This is your word. And Jesus, we want to echo the prayer of those who want to have good soil in their hearts to receive what you're saying. Open our ears. Open our eyes. Open our minds to see and to hear and to know you better. Please, Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit's work here in every one of us. Highlight what you want to highlight. Bring to the surface what you want to bring to the surface. Ultimately, Lord, we praise you this morning. We thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, friends, what is this passage about? <laughs> you know, when I first looked at it, I thought to myself, I even said to Kate, well, this is a bit obscure. <laughs> this, is, this is something, but I think the beauty of this passage is that it's simple. It actually is simple, and we don't need to complicate it, and we don't need to add on all of these layers of, ooh, it could mean this, and it could mean that, but actually there's some very straightforward things that I believe Jesus wants to show, not just the Pharisees and the elders and the scribes that he was talking to and the crowd that was gathered, but to us today, 2022. And so, there are going to be moments where I'm going to be sharing what, I, what the scripture is saying to those people, and then there'll be times when I'm going to say, and I believe this could be for us too. All right, just let you have that idea. Great. So the first part, let's go. They came again to Jerusalem and he was walking in the temple. And then it says these words, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders. Now those were groups of people. Other translations will say the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. It's these groups of the Jewish religious leaders. And to see the chief priests there, the Sanhedrin was a big deal because they, we only hear about them twice in the gospels and that is now when Jesus has just upset things in the temple and caused a bit of a ruckus and then it's later on at the trial of Jesus where the Sanhedrin stand there, part of the trial, part of the accusation towards the son of God. And so the fact that they're here means that Jesus has really disturbed some people and they're not here out of intrigue. They're not here out of interest. They're like, oh, who's this Jesus? He seems fascinating. Like, have you heard? He came in on a donkey. They are here seeking to catch him out. They're here trying to um, show him that they believe him to be a fraud. They believe him to be not the son of God. And so when they come and they ask the question, by whose authority are you doing these things? It's not an honest question. It's not a question saying, hey, like we want to know more about who you are. It's, it's a question where actually it's a, and I'm sure many of us have been in that place where someone has acted in a way that we find so offensive that we ask the question, who do you think you are? Has anyone been there? I have, big time, and I think it often <laughs> inside of my head, often at school or often on the road or often when I hear about what someone has done that I think is just so unjust, it's so not right that I just think, who, who do they think they are? And that's the tone that's behind this question. 
by whose authority are you doing these things or who gave you the authority to do them? And Jesus knows exactly what they're asking. He knows exactly how they're asking. So Jesus says to them, I will ask you one question. Jesus' modus operandi, the way that he did things was that he often to um, catch them in their own trap would ask a question back instead of answer directly. And he says, I will ask you one question, answer me. I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's the question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? You're thinking that's a strange way of saying from heaven. Why not just say from God, you know? But in those days, there was this um, awe and reverence around using the name of God and saying, so he meets them halfway there and he says, okay, was John, this person, that, that all of these people, the crowd around you, all recognize as a prophet, as someone who was sent from God, is he from heaven or is he from man? Is he just a crazy person who's on a bit of a popularity um, train or what's going on here? Now, he's caught these religious leaders in their own trap because they know, they know that John is something different something they haven't seen for a long, long time. They know that he is from God. And so they are straight away, they don't want to say, well, he's obviously from God because John, as we sang this morning, was known for when he saw Jesus, what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John had personally endorsed this person, Jesus. He had pointed to him and said, you, you think I am fancy and cool, but he but he is the Lamb of God. He is the one. They, there would have been people there who had heard of the baptism of Jesus where he'd gone into the water and come out and they would have heard the voice of heaven saying, this is my son who I love, with whom I'm well pleased. They would have seen the Holy Spirit like a dove landing on him. And so they would be unable to deny that there was something about Jesus that they had not seen before and they had not dealt with. In fact, they would have heard rumors or just straight up fact from people who are eyewitnesses to the fact that Lazarus, just a little bit before, had been raised from the dead. He was dead for four days and then he was raised from the dead by this person, Jesus. There was no way that they could actually say, you know what, John, John was totally, John was right. You know, John's ministry, he's from God because if they did that, they are also saying, Jesus, everything that John said about you was true and you are the son of God. That's amazing here. Yeah, there's two kind of very practical things I want to pull out of here very fast. It's a sort of side thought. The first one is this, and their words are kind of sneak at us, but if we really weigh them up, I think it diagnoses part of our issue as a generation very, very well. And it's this. They discussed it with one another, saying all these things we say from heaven, but if we say he's from man, and then there's like pause, this hesitation, and it says they were afraid of the people. They were afraid of the people. And I, I just felt my own heart pause as I read that. And I actually said, God, <laughs> we can look at these people and say, oh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, mm, dirty, dirty. You know, they just really mess up, don't they? But we are them. <laughs> because what are the things that we do because we're afraid of people? Or the things we don't do because we're afraid of people? And I, I just felt God even put on my own heart. Actually, Mark, put yourself in the shoes of these people as you read this passage, because actually there's lots for you to learn. And uh, I just thought, wow, Jesus, <laughs> I've done that. I have done what I shouldn't have done because I was afraid of what people would say. And I've done what I should, I have not done what I should have done because I was afraid of what people might think. Our popularity, people's opinions of us, they're a big problem. Jesus never struggled with that. 
Praise God for that. Let's keep going. The second practical thing is you see Jesus essentially gets them to this place where they say, we don't know. They abdicate. They just say, listen, we don't know. They don't want to commit either way. They don't want to look like fools. They don't want to say that Jesus is true. And so they just do what, even at school, sorry, school goers, yeah, they'll say, I don't know the answer. I'm like, you do. Shame, my poor kids in my class. I often will say to them, guys, you do know. There's a brain in your skull and it is amazing and it has knowledge. Use it. And they're like, ah! no, they don't. They're not, they're not too keen to have someone in their grill. But I can also imagine, actually, if they were, honest if they were honest there they would have said Jesus what we've heard about you frightens us because it spells the end for a corrupt religious system that has alienated people from God and Jesus we are afraid of you because you expose our own hypocrisy Jesus we know that you are something different we might not know fully who you are yet but we know that you're something different. And truly, Jesus, we are afraid of what the people would say or do if we either denied you or um, endorsed you. We are afraid, Jesus. Please have mercy on us. If they were honest, that should have been their answer. But they weren't. And so what did they say? We don't know. Do you see how what a lazy answer that is? Anyway, but the second thing is this. And shame, I am spending a little bit of time here. I will get to the parable now. But I felt such an encouragement from that portion as well. Because for me, I, I, I'm a scientist by qualification and a teacher by vocation. And um, I used to sit in lecture halls in my fourth year of study with rabid atheists as my lecturers. Um, and they would, uh, you think preaching only happens in a church. It doesn't. It happens in universities as well. And um, I remember sitting there and watching these men and women just go for it, try to convince you. And I actually intellect and crowds and authority and power which these men represented can be intimidating and um but jesus is not intimidated by them and i felt like god remind me even while i was reading this something of himself he said i am the, the source of all knowledge and all understanding and all wisdom all intellect it's mine i made it it says by him through him and for him all things were made and so that includes cleverness and jesus was not afraid of these men Jesus was completely in control of that moment. They thought they had him in a trap, but Jesus was not foiled or, uh, fooled by them at all. Um, and I just actually, I praise God, friends, because Jesus is as in control in a hall like this where his word is being preached and his worship is being sung as in a lecture hall where a rabid atheist shares about how God is not real. Jesus is in control there too because all knowledge and all wisdom and all intellect and all things are from him. And he has the answer, and he knows what to say. And so for you, if ever you are in a conversation or thing where someone has just basically intimidated you because you, have, you feel like you don't have the words. For me, I don't know if I could have stood up to my professors and say, this is why I think that you're wrong, blah, 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 blah. I, I don't have the cleverness to do that. And maybe you can sympathize with me there too. But what I do know is that God has given me, and it's he's given me a faith that was never shifted by how much they talked about how God's not real and creation is a bunch of accidents and all those things. I, I sat there and there was just this, and I, it's not, ooh, Mikey, you're so amazing. It's just this gift from God, this faith that said, I know that I know that I know that God is real and that one day, Jesus, would they get that faith too? One day would they know you in that way as well? And so maybe if that's for you and you, you've been a little bit intimidated by what seems to be this mountain of intellect against God, 
Jesus is not afraid of it. You don't need to be either. Okay, let's go keep going. So parable of the tenants. Are you guys ready? Are you still good? I feel like if anyone ever said no there, I wouldn't be quite sure what to do, but, <laughs> but we would carry on going nonetheless. All right, so chapter 12, it says this now, then he began to speak to them in parables. So it's the whole crowd, but Jesus is making no mistake here. He is addressing them, the people who just asked him a question with a parable. He's going give to give them his answer, but in a way that is basically a smackdown. It's fantastic. So let's have a look. He starts off and says, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and he leased it to tenants. This part of the story would not be weird for anybody there. We'd be like, ooh, what a strange and intriguing thing. This is what happened at the time. People would prepare farms, especially if you were wealthy, you would prepare a farm, you'd get everything sorted there, and then you're rich. You don't want to the ground yourself, and so you lease it out to people who can, and they will share in something of the profits of that land, but you will, as the landowner, receive the bigger portion, um, and so Jesus starts off the story, and they would have probably been tra- tracking with them fine. They'd be like, this is perfect. If we have a look at this landowner, what have they done? They've really invested into the land well. They have put a wine press there so that you don't have to take the grapes far away, I mean, I don't think they have a a very big logistic kind of system going there. And so it's great that you can just take your grapes from the field to the wine press and sort them out. And then um, he has a tower. Now, I'm sure towers could be used for many cool things. I didn't want to kind of ascribe a function to the tower, but I think we can kind of get there on ourselves. He's got a fence around it. He's put the effort in, and then he leases it out. He gives it to tenants to look after with the understanding that he has ownership over things that are there. So... When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get some of the fruit from the vineyard. This also wasn't weird. It was completely normal practice to send someone to your farm to get stuff that is actually yours. What do these guys do with a servant? Well, it says that they, they, they beat him up and they chucked him out of the vineyard. All right. And you might think for, for a second there, maybe they didn't know who the servant was. Maybe they, they thought he was trying to um, you know, hoodwink them or steal some of the fruit for himself, whatever it may be. But it was very likely that this servant arrived with some sort of letter or master's insignia saying, actually, I belong to the landowner, to the master, um, and he's asking for the fruit, as is the agreement. But they, they go against the agreement, and for whatever reason, these guys beat him up and throw him out. The next one who comes, it says that they hit him on the face hit him on the head, and they throw him out as well, empty-handed. And you're starting to listen. You can imagine the people listening to the story and saying, what are they doing? Why? Why are they rebelling against something that is beneficial and profitable to them, that actually they, they stand to do really well with? What are they thinking? Uh, and I hope that you're there as well, because I read and I hear that story and I think, these guys are insane. But <laughs> it keeps going. He then sends another to them, and what do they do with that one? They kill them. And you now at this point must think, I think the insanity might be on both sides because the, the, the tenants have rebelled against the, the master of the vineyard, but the master keeps sending servants as well. And you think, surely, no, after the second guy comes, I think anybody of us would probably be like, I'm getting a bunch of really tough people and army soldiers if I can, and I'm going to go and forcibly remove them from that land because they are acting ridiculous. Is there any agreement there? Are you guys like, actually, no, we, okay, good. So you're like me. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm so glad. Um, so it keeps on going. It says that he sends more and more. They, let's see, took him and beat him, sent him away. Um, he sent another, they killed him, and so many others. You think, how many did he send? 
How many did this master send again and again and again to this rebellious people? And some they beat, some they killed. Finally, he, sent, he said to them, I have my beloved son. And at this point, every parable that Jesus told would have had a <gasps> moment where the people listening would have gasped, they would have been surprised, they would have thought, what on earth does he mean? Why is he doing this? And that is that moment. Because the pattern has been sort of beaten, hit on the head, killed. Then beaten, killed, beaten, killed, beaten, killed. The son, the beloved son that's getting sent, I think we can agree through pure logic, is either getting beaten or he's getting killed. And, um, and so the people who are sitting there are probably thinking, this is insanity. This is ridiculous. Why has the master not gone himself with the army and absolutely destroyed these rebellious people? They have gone against the agreement. So he had another, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. You can see the depth of their crookedness in this moment because they, they're, not just, they're not just happy to kill and beat servants. They, they, they now look at the son coming. There's kind of two things at play here. If the son is walking in, it could be that the master's dead and the son is coming to claim the inheritance, in which case, if they kill him, the inheritance is theirs. Or at the same time, they just are, their wickedness has no end, and they're just thinking, well, we will just kill the son. Whoever comes, we're going to kill them. Either way, we can see the intentions of their hearts. We kind of get to eavesdrop in on their conversation a little bit. And it says this, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They can claim no innocence in this story, because we get to see and to hear actually where their hearts were at. So they took him, they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. And then he, Jesus then poses this question to the people. He says, what should be done? What should the owner do with these wicked servants? These, the Bible sometimes calls them the unfaithful tenants. And I think in this passage, he answers it himself. In the other gospels, Jesus actually leaves it open to the crowd to answer. And you can almost imagine them hissing and grinding their teeth and saying, destroy them. Destroy them. Let justice visit them fully actually, because they are messing around. And then he answers them in this way. He says, what the owner will do, he will come and he will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And, and that moment would have been a slap in the face for those religious leaders, those Sadducees, those Pharisees, those people listening, because this passage, as you'll read just now, is about them. It's about them. And so quick little um, diagnosis of that um, parable is that the vineyard owner is God the Father. The son being sent, the beloved son, is Jesus Christ. The tenants are those religious leaders. It's the leaders of the Jewish people. The vineyard is God's people. Are you guys with me? So that's kind of the, the simplified taking out of it. And they would have gotten there by themselves, not, not for because they were super clever, but because that was something that was already understood about the Jewish people. Isaiah 5 talks about the um, nation of Israel being God's vineyard. It wouldn't have been a surprise for them to have heard this parable and straight away made the association. But then he, Jesus carries on. It's like he's not done yet. He wants to finish the smack down fully. And he says, he quotes out of Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 is a psalm of praise that would have been sung around the time of the Passover, which is when Jesus was in Jerusalem with these people. And so they would have been singing the psalm. They would know it. It would be familiar to them. And he quotes from it. And he says, the stone that the builders rejected 
has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. But before that, Jesus is in complete control of this moment because he asks these people who are probably some of the most learned people of Jewish society. They studied the law, they memorized it, they knew the scriptures, but he asks them this question. Have you not read the scripture? You know, like it's almost, you can imagine Peter in the background going, you know, like because he, Peter would have always got his foot in his mouth shame in so many ways. But Peter, I can imagine listening to Jesus say this, to these um, religious leaders and would have, Peter thought, how can Jesus say that? Oh my goodness. And so Jesus says to them, have you not read the scripture? Do you not know? Have you not paid attention? Has the kingdom of God that has been passing in front of you all this time, I mean, the dead are raised, the blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, people are being healed left, right, and center. The kingdom of God is being preached about in a way that it never has before. Are you missing it? Are you missing? Have you read the scriptures? Have you heard the songs that you were singing as you came up to Passover at the temple? He says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And we could go into a whole thing about what that means in terms of the cornerstone, but basically what we need to take from it is this, friends. The cornerstone is the most important stone. There's various areas of thought around whether it's a stone on top or a stone underneath. Is it a foundation stone or a stone on the side? It's okay. But what you need to take from this, it's the most important stone. And, uh, and, and when he says this thing, the builders rejected it, he's, he's pointing again at those unfaithful tenants. He's pointing again at the religious leaders and he's saying, guys, you are rejecting the most important stone. You are rejecting the most important thing. And so this would have been a further layer onto what his rebuke to them was. And he says, this "This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. I can imagine as the kingdom of God unfolds in front of these ordinary farmer uh, farmer folk, fishermen, um, politicians, business people, as it unfolded in front of them, I can imagine them echoing this thing, saying, this is marvelous. This is the Lord's doing. And I thought even for us this morning, friends, imagine if that was our attitude to every day. Even this morning as we sit, we're not just sitting occupying a chair, you know, doing our thing. Actually, the kingdom of God is unfolding before us at this very moment, unstoppable. And we get to say, because we know, we get to say, this is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. There is something happening here. And Jesus was completely aware of what they were going to do to him. That parable, Jesus is, there's, um, there's almost like that feeling of, of uh, above this moment is God's uh, prophetic and redemptive intention for all creation is kind of over that moment with these people saying, you are going to kill me. You are going to crucify me. I am the son. I am the one that's going to come. And the unfaithful tenants, which is you guys, you're going to destroy me. And But at the same time, there's that prophetic hope because he says, actually, there's a cornerstone and it's become, uh, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You're gonna reject me, sure, but I am gonna become the cornerstone, the most important thing that God is building. And it's gonna be marvelous in your eyes. It's an absolutely amazing moment. And I think for us, we are so privileged to read the scriptures because we have that perspective that I don't think they would have had at that time. They would have kind of listened to it and probably thought, well, that was a really profound thing, Jesus. But we get to sit there centuries later and look back and say, this is the Lord's doing. This is, God had planned it all along. And so 
Oh, I forgot to say, the servants that the master kept sending, that was his prophets again and again and again. In fact, in Zechariah, I think it is. Let me grab my notes very, very quickly. There we go, Jeremiah, I'm sorry, I lied to you. Jeremiah 7, verses 25, Jeremiah is rebuking God's people, one of the prophets, and he says this, from the time of your ans- that your ancestors left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I will send my servants, the prophets, but you did not receive them. What a rebuke. And you can see it in that parable, servant after servant, beaten, killed. And if you read something of the history of those prophets, they were beaten, killed, imprisoned, exiled, um, sawn in half. All of those things were, if you wanted to be a prophet, (laughs) then you best know that on your job description is potential death. Um, I think that's a very solid warning to perhaps modern day people who like to put the title prophet so-and-so, you know? Because the Bible paints a very frightening job description for you. Um, Anyway, let's keep going. (laughs) So, what are some principles that we can take out of this passage? Jesus, in this um, incredible little parable, he uh, exposes their hypocrisy. He judges the religious leaders for how they have been unfaithful with God's vineyard. In fact, they would have known exactly what he meant. In Isaiah 5, which I alluded to earlier, verses 7 This is what they would have had ringing in their mind. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but he saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. They would have had that in their minds thinking, actually, Jesus is is talking about us. He's, he's, He's referring to us. We are the unfaithful people. So this parable is about two major things, I think. I think it's about authority, and we could spend a whole morning talking about authority, friends. God's authority over our lives. Some of the um, other gospels, when they talk about Jesus referring to the cornerstone, he says, this stone will be a, a, a rock of stumbling for you, and for some of you, it will crush you. Like, that's his warning to them. He says, you're gonna stumble over me as the cornerstone, and some of you, um, you're gonna be crushed with my lordship, actually, at the end of days. Like, we, 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 we can't mess with Jesus. He is the Lord of everything. We sing it in our songs, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. I think our democracy has perhaps robbed us a little bit of that understanding of sovereignty because in the old days, in medieval times, they would have understood that thing of if the king or queen said, move, you moved. If they said, jump, you said, how high. And we, I don't know, perhaps it's me, but I think sometimes democracy sneaks into our hearts. It's a beautiful thing. You know, but actually we, we start to perhaps think a little bit like these servants could have started thinking, actually, you know, we've worked really hard. This is, in some ways, this is ours, you know? Like we, we deserve it a little bit more. I don't know, just a little thought of mine. Um, I was just thinking, actually, Jesus, give us a full picture of your sovereignty, please. So this, that's first thing's authority. The second thing that I thought maybe God is highlighting to us this morning is fruit. It's fruit. Jesus took an exception with that fig tree because it didn't have fruit. Um, It's amazing that it actually says in that passage, when you read it, it says it was not the time for figs, but Jesus came and looked for fruit anyway. But in the parable, it says it was the time of the harvest. It was the time for fruitfulness, and the master sent the servants. And I almost read that and thought, God, could it be that to you, it's always fruitful time? It always is? Like, actually, you're always looking for fruit from your people? And may we be ready, please, Lord, Yes, I don't want to be all dressed up, but nowhere to go. You know what I mean? That fig tree full of leaves, full of things like that 
the court where the, the, the Jesus went and chased them out of, where there's a noise and a commotion, there's activity, but there is no hearts turned towards God. You know, that's, I don't want my life to be that. And so there's something very important about fruit that Jesus is highlighting here for us. So I thought a few little principles for us to take from this, and then we're gonna close together. The first principle is this. I think this parable shows us that God is so generous in the blessing of his people. He is so generous in the blessing of his people. What do I mean by that? Well, you see the effort that the owner goes to to getting that farm ready. He was under no obligation to do so, but he did. He did not expect good fruit, uh, so good fruit, (laughs) good fruit, there we go, from a poorly kept or poorly prepared vineyard. God is not a cruel taskmaster uh, but, uh, and we see that in the fullness of his divine and redemptive story. We're told again and again, as you read the Bible, he is kind, he is compassionate, he is patient, he is good. Um, I think of the Psalms, even that Psalm 118 that we're gonna refer back to a little bit later on. It just says, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. It reminds you again and again, God is good. God is generous. God is kind. The, the owner in the story is good and generous and kind and patient. Oh my word, is he patient? Because if it was me, to my shame to say, it would take one servant and I would be in there causing a ruckus. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? But God shows us that he is kind to his people. He shows us that he protects them and he gives them meaningful work to do. Just like in the parable, he says, now tend the land. Make it, let it be fruitful, benefit from it. And the same way it rings of Eden, actually for us, God gives us purpose and he gives us work and he gives us land to tend, you know, your family, your work, your life, you steward God's favor and God's grace and God's blessing every day. The very breath that we have, the heartbeats that occur within our chest, they are us getting to steward the generosity of God towards us. It's an amazing, amazing thing. And we believe that God has, what God has given us isn't, um, there just to satisfy us, but actually it's to bring him honor and to bring him praise and to bring him glory. And uh, what's interesting is that in Israel, which this um, parable is about, they rebelled again and again in dissatisfaction. They forgot God's generosity. They forgot God's goodness again and again. They looked for others. They looked for more. And this is our story too. We, we forget God's kindness we forget uh, that actually he's holding out. We, so we think that he's holding out on us. We forget that he's given us everything we need. Think about temptation. What's the lure of temptation? Oh, there's something that God hasn't given you. Go look for it. Go find it. That's an amazing thing that even, even this parable can teach us something of actually that God is kind and God is good and actually that we can be satisfied in him. He is so generous. Second principle God is patient and persistent with his people. He is patient and persistent. Friends, if you are here this morning and you perhaps are sitting quite defeated in your chair because you know that you have failed this week in some way and you think, God, there is no way that you have time for me. For these other holy, awesome people, sure, but not for me. The Bible tells us that God is patient and persistent and that he relentlessly is pursuing each one of us to bring us into his redemptive story. And that is an incredible encouragement for all of us. But person after person, servant after servant, he sent prophet after prophet, he sent to his people, and they brutalized each and every single one of them. They mocked them, they beat them, and yet God sends and sends and sends and seeks and seeks and seeks and calls and calls and calls. God is patient with us, and he's persistent with us. I could spend more time on there, but I think the point's made. 
Point number three, man's sin, our sin, is an insane attempt to thwart God's authority. Um, what do I mean by that? It's just also, what a great word, thwart. I love it. <laughs> to, and to thwart God's ownership as well. What do I mean? Well, let me, let me read from my notes here. Does anyone else find the actions of the tenants insane? Did you really think, did they really think that this strategy would work? They were obviously blinded by sin's deceitfulness. They were obviously blinded by it, yet they were not content to be tenants. They wanted to be owners. They desired a so-called freedom um, so that they could do what they wanted, um, even though they knew the consequences. And how true is that of us? That actually, sin, that's for us. When we sin, when we, when we do that, we, we actually, we know the consequences of our actions half the time, you know? But we do it anyway, because sin's deceitful, it blinds. And not just that, not only does it blind us to consequences, but it erases our memory from when we've done it a hundred times before. And it's this amazing, amazing thing. If you, if you look at it, if you step back, you think, actually, we are just like these people in the parable. Day after day, we fall short. We live crookedly. But God is patient and persistent with his people. Um, We say in our hearts, I belong to myself. I can do what I like. The Bible teaches us that you are not your own. You were bought with a price. And and I think of the way that we steward our lives. We steward our our families, our homes, our, our jobs, our time, all those things. Actually, do we live in a way that acknowledges the lordship and authority and ownership of God over our lives? Or do we live in a way that doesn't? It's probably a really good question to think through. Point number four. In response to man's sin, God sends his son. That's point number four. In response to our crookedness and our deep depravity, our deep need for God. God doesn't just send servant after servant after servant. He eventually sends his son, Jesus. And Jesus comes as God's answer to our crookedness and our depravity. It's the most incredible thing. Jesus is saying to these Pharisees, these people gathered here, he says to them, guys, you want to know who I am? I'm the son. I'm the son. My father owns everything. He owns this vineyard that you are holding on to with your like really tight claws. He owns it but I'm the son here and you are gonna kill me. But what they don't know is that the killing of Jesus is part of God's redemptive plan as well. And that through that, death, burial, resurrection, salvation is coming to all the nations. Because that was the dream. That was the dream. There's actually this passage that's so beautiful. It's in Isaiah, I think it is. No, yeah, it is. Isaiah chapter 49, verses six. The dream of God for his people, Israel, was this. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. What an incredible purpose that God's people had was to be a light to all the world so that the salvation of God would get to the ends of the earth, to every nation. That was the purpose. And Jesus, through Jesus, that original intention gets fulfilled, which is an amazing, amazing thing. Coming into a land, friends. I just love saying that. (laughs) So when he says on whose authority, he's saying, my father's the landowner, I am the son, and guess what you're gonna do to me? In, re- in response to our worst, friends, in response to our worst sin, our worst depravity, whatever it is that we have done, God sends his son, Jesus. He sends his best, his beloved son to die for us. And I, I absolutely love that. The final part, final principle is point number five. And uh, Jesus obviously asked them, have you read the scriptures? Do you, do you even know the truth to these guys? And he talks about this cornerstone. 
this cornerstone. And uh, the final point is this, God has chosen a cornerstone for us to build our lives on. Not, we haven't chosen the cornerstone. God has chosen the cornerstone for us to build our lives on. I, I, I always, I find it so interesting when someone says like, I found Jesus. I'm like, where? <laughs> like, because like, how did that work? Like what, what amazing journey have you been on? Because the truth is that he finds us. <laughs> he finds us. God finds us. He draws us out and he gives us Jesus. He chooses Jesus for us. The best of the best of the best. And so some last thoughts and then we're done. It's this. Um, Bobby was sharing that word before, uh, before I, I got to come up, and I was just reminded that actually in Jesus, rebels get to come home. In, in Jesus, we are, I love that, that story, Bobby. I think it's so good, actually, that we are lost children, but in Jesus, rebels get to come home. And if you're a rebel this morning, in Jesus, you get to come home. There's a different ending to the story in some ways, or there's a further ending to it, which is that actually Jesus brings salvation and redemption to the people who least deserve it. And that, that's us. And uh, the second kind of thing that I'd love to touch on quickly is to be fruitful. I believe that Jesus is very, very concerned with fruit. And I thought to close, we could look at John 15 together. So if you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn there? And we're just gonna read it together. Someone stole the book of John from my Bible. <laughs> Yes, aware. I thought this would be a good place, obviously looking at the text that we've looked at this morning, but this week, as you spend time with your father, as you go into a room and you close the door, this is a great passage to look at. Jesus teaching his people says this, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. And uh, I would keep reading, but you can do that in the quiet of your own home. Jesus wants fruit from our lives. The branches, which is us in that picture, we, we don't brag about our own fruit-bearing ability. <laughs> like, look at, ooh, look at this fruit that we did. We know that the very source and sustenance for the fruit that we bear comes from the vine that we're attached to. And that's Jesus. Jesus allows us to build on him. Jesus calls us to be grafted into him. Jesus calls us to draw on him and him only so that we can be fruitful. Because that's what he wants from his people. He wants his people to be fruitful every day. What kind of fruit? What, what fruit is God looking for? I believe partly it's, it's what John was talking about, the fruit that leads to repentance. It's actually are our hearts aimed towards God and the things that we do. As God, if I was messing around there, Lord, bring me back. I'm so sorry, Lord. I'm coming back. Orientate me towards you. That was the heart of the Gentile court, that outer court being um, freed of all of those marketplace people. And English left me for a second there. But that was the heart, that the Gentiles would be able to come in and repent and turn towards God and know him for themselves. Jesus wants his people to be fruitful. That's the call this morning. Acknowledge God's authority. He owns everything. And acknowledge that actually he wants us to be fruitful, everyone, in a beautiful way that can only happen because we're plugged into Jesus and in no other place. Amen. Awesome. I'm going to hand over to Francois. Bless you, friends. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Uh, can the band come up? Thank you, Marco. Really great. So wonderful to...
just have an opportunity to respond to God's word and to what has been preached. And something that's really just uh, jumped out at me is the opportunity for us. The song is actually, I will follow Jesus. So won't you stand? And in this final moment of us actually praying that we as each individual can respond to the cornerstone that has been chosen for us. The vine and this is closed also with the, we, we can't bear fruit without Jesus. We can't build our lives on any other cornerstone on any other but to actually see and the one to whom all authority is given is here jesus and so as we as we close in this prayer as a song let make it our desire that we would follow jesus and we have accepted the one that god has chosen for us and we will set our affections and our hearts on them so lord we we thank you for this morning and we, we do say lord we see you 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 have exalted your son at this time father and We've seen you in worship and again through the preach. And now we, we do want to say we want to follow you. We accept Jesus, you as our one upon which we would build our lives. And we thank you for your incredible generosity, Father. Thank you for your tenacity of pursuing us. Thank you for the grace that is extended to each one of us time and time again to come and to receive the one whom you have chosen. So we do it now with all our hearts.